The following content is explicit. It's Thursday, February 15th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Leon Nafok, filling in today for Mike Pesca. So before the school shooting in Florida, the thing I couldn't stop thinking about was the career of technology writer Quinn Norton. On Tuesday, it was announced that Norton was joining the New York Times editorial board, and that she would serve as the paper's lead opinion writer on the power, culture, and consequences of technology. The hire was initially celebrated by many journalists who knew Norton's work from Wired, where she wrote about the hacker group Anonymous and hacker culture in general. After the Times announcement, people on Twitter started circulating pieces that Quinn Norton had written in which she described a notorious neo-Nazi internet troll as her friend. They also circulated an essay that she had written in which she referred to an actual Nazi, like a member of the Nazi party, as her personal patron saint of moral complexity. It was also noted that Norton seemed to freely use a slur for gay people on Twitter during heated debates, a practice that my colleague April Glazer described in a terrific slate piece as a relic of Norton's time on hacker message boards, where the word was used differently. As April wrote, Norton's use of the slur was an expression of her radical privileging of free speech over all other values. The storm over Norton's record did not go over well at the Times. About six or seven hours after Norton's hiring was announced, the Times followed up to say that they had reconsidered the decision. They would not be hiring Norton after all. This was a whirlwind of an afternoon. And I should say I had never heard of Quinn Norton before any of this. And when I heard about the controversy, I was surprised. It made no sense to me that the New York Times would have hired this person in the first place. And in contrast, it made all the sense in the world to me that they would change their mind about hiring her once all this odious stuff was brought to their attention. So that was my sense of it based mostly on reading Twitter. But then I started seeing quite a few prominent people, figures with sterling reputations in left-wing circles like Ethan Zuckerman from MIT and Scott Klein from ProPublica, saying that the Times had gotten it wrong. On Facebook, Zuckerman wrote that he was happy for about an hour when he found out that Quinn Norton was named the New York Times editorial board. It was a brave and exciting choice, he wrote. Quinn is a brilliant tech commentator, and her politics, a mix of progressive, pro-queer, anarchic questioning of power structures, while not identical to mine, was an exciting force to bring into the dialogue about tech. So I couldn't understand it. I was very confused. Who was this person who was admired by Ethan Zuckerman and also friends with Nazis? To find out, I spoke to one of my colleagues, Justin Peters. Justin's been on the show before. You guys know him. And the reason I wanted to talk to him was that he knows a lot about Quinn Norton's background in hacker culture. Justin is the author of a book called The Idealist. It's a biography of Aaron Swartz, a young, gifted hacker who committed suicide in 2013. I'll let Justin tell you what Aaron Swartz has to do with Norton. And after the interview, I will spiel about the interview, and about Quinn Norton, and about Twix bars. I'm here now with Justin Peters to shed some light on Quinn Norton and the tech world that she came out of. Hey, Justin, thanks for coming on, even as you are up to your ears in the Olympics. It's all right, man. Happy to uh, happy to help out. All right. So so I want to just quickly recap what happened between Quinn Norton and The New York Times this week before we get into our conversation. So on Tuesday, it was announced that Norton was joining the paper's editorial board and she would become the paper's lead opinion writer on the power, culture and consequences of technology. After the announcement, people started circulating pieces that Quinn Norton had written 
in which she described a, a notorious neo-Nazi internet troll as a friend of hers. She referred to an actual Nazi, like a member of the Nazi party, as her personal patron saint of moral complexity. And she freely used a slur for gay people to address people she was arguing with on Twitter. Then I started seeing all these people with sterling reputations in left-wing circles saying that the Times had gotten it wrong. People, you know, like uh, Ethan Zuckerman from MIT, uh, an editor at ProPublica. Uh, and then suddenly I, I became quite confused and curious. So I'm going to stop there and I'm going to ask you to explain to me why people like that were defending Norton and on what basis. Well, for one reason, because they've all known her for, you know, going on 20 years, if not more. Quinn Norton has been moving in hacker circles or sort of Internet freedom circles basically since the World Wide Web became a thing. So that bestows upon her a certain credibility among other people who've also been living, working and writing in this world since the 90s. Mm -hmm. And it is baffling to me that the Times did apparently zero due diligence here because she hadn't deleted any of these tweets. Her account wasn't restricted. Literally anyone could have taken 10 minutes to go through her Twitter timeline, look at some of this stuff and say, hey, maybe this isn't the best hire right now. And it's baffling to me that either they didn't do that or, which I think is equally likely, they did do that and said, well, we're going to go ahead and bring her on anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's such a quick reversal here. Um, yeah, it was like six hours, right? Six hours, like um, – <laughs> announcing her hire and then announcing that they're parting ways. Like that's, it, it, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, it's very weird. So I, I want to be clear about the reason I wanted to talk to you about Norton. And, and that is that you are the author of a book called The Idealist, which is about a digital activist, hacking activist named Aaron Swartz, who committed suicide after coming under federal investigation. Can you tell our listeners what the connection is between Norton and Aaron Swartz? Sure. I'll preface it by saying that I don't know Quinn Norton, so I have no first-hand knowledge of anything that I'm saying. Meaning, but, meaning, uh, meaning you, didn't, you didn't have a chance to interview her for the book or, or have another kind of interaction with her? Correct, correct, correct. So Aaron Swartz and Quinn Norton first met in 2002 when Aaron was 15, and he went out to California as this 15-year-old computing prodigy who had helped develop the Creative Commons project with uh, Larry Lessig, he went out to California for the big Creative Commons launch party. And he went to a house party at Quinn Norton's apartment. And as far as I know, that was the first time they met. He was 15. She was 28. She was writing on technology at the time. And circulating in sort of the really sort of like tight-knit uh, Silicon Valley world of sort of internet freedom people. And when Aaron moved to San Francisco to go to Stanford uh, a few years later, and then subsequently uh, left Stanford after his freshman year to help build uh, Reddit, Swartz and Norton uh, moved in together and eventually started dating. He was maybe about 20 years old at the time. She was, would have been 33, uh, 32, 33. And uh, it was Swartz's first relationship. It was not Norton's first relationship. 
She'd been married, uh, right? She had a kid. Yeah, and then she was in a polyamorous relationship with two men when they first met back in 2002. And that ended, apparently. And then she and Aaron dated on and off for, I want to say, three, four years until Aaron was arrested after going into MIT and using their computing resources to download almost five million documents from the JSTOR database. Right. And this was this was this was the the act that, that that earned him the attention of federal prosecutors. What was Norton's role in his life during that investigation? So uh, she was the first person that Aaron called, as far as I know, after he was initially arrested in January 2013 by City of Cambridge cops. He called Quinn and Quinn called a lawyer and the lawyer helped get Aaron out of jail. Then once the U.S. attorney's office in Boston got wind of the case and picked it up and started trying to build a federal case against him, they called Quinn Norton in to talk. And during the proffer session, they offered her a queen for a day deal, which is basically a deal that says whatever you say in this room, like we won't use against you. We're not going to uh, prosecute you Uh uh, based on what you say. And they were asking her all these questions about what she knew about Schwartz's plans for the documents he had downloaded. Why he downloaded them, right? Why he downloaded them. Yeah. Whether she had been involved in it. And Quinn wrote all about this in a piece for the Atlantic uh, a few years ago. And what she eventually came around to saying is she was not feeling well that day. She was on some sort of medication. She felt disoriented. She felt intimidated by the two male U.S. attorneys that were questioning her. Mm -hmm. And she eventually felt like she needed to give them something because if she didn't give them something, she worried that they would then go after her once she left that room and compel her to turn over some computing resources of her own. So what she did is she told the uh, U.S. attorneys about a manifesto that Swartz had written a few years back called the Guerrilla Open Access Manifesto. It was about a page and a half long document where he basically said that people of good conscience who have access to databases and such through institutional affiliations or just being super rich or whatnot should use that power that they have to take as much info as they can acquire, download it, and share it with people who can't afford to access it. And he wrote this up, posted it on his personal website, did some other posts about it. And then two years later, the feds get wind of this, and they hadn't heard about it until Norton told them. Uh-huh. She, 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 she told them about the about the fact that this manifesto uh, could be could be accessed on his blog, basically. Yeah, yeah. They, they, she told them that it existed, and that was eventually uh, what they used to build their case. Uh, it was basically, it gave them it gave them a motive, right? It basically yeah, exactly. said why exactly. why he wanted to steal these documents. And for going forward, that was the dominant frame of their case, and he eventually got charged with thirteen felonies that carried a maximum sentence of nine to five years in prison. The federal guideline sentence was something along the lines of seven to eight years in federal prison. Uh, There was no real settlement that could be reached. And in January 2013, Swartz took his own life. 
In that essay that Norton wrote that you referred to a, a minute ago, she says that this blog post was a public document, that it hadn't occurred to her that this would be the first time that these prosecutors would have heard about it, and that if they had done any kind of research on their target, they would have come across it. And so she didn't feel as though she was really giving them anything. Uh, how do you react to that framing? Is that is that a fair characterization of, of what happened? I mean, I buy it. I don't think that necessarily absolves her. To bring it back to the Times thing, yep. um, it's sort of indicative of a certain uh, naivete, right, that you sort of see in someone who would say these things on a public platform and perhaps not realize or believe that it, you know, might eventually disqualify her from employment. What what did that world in which Norton and Swartz worked, what did that world have to do with this other world that Norton was apparently part of uh, and which I, I think got her sort of in the most trouble uh, this week, which is this world of Internet trolls who use, you know, Nazi slogans and, and imagery, perhaps ironically, perhaps uh, earnestly, perhaps somehow both. Um, what do those things have to do with each other? And, and how can a person with n- the background that you just described have had anything to do with them and had any connection with them? My best guess on that is that all of these worlds are really center around people for whom the internet is more than just a professional tool. It is sort of a fundamental part of who they are. And I think that there are certain similarities between people like Norton and the sort of Silicon Valley internet freedom uh, crowd who have sort of mainlined the idea of the internet as a tool that, if you know how to use it, you know, can bring about great change in the world. And people like Weave and, you know... The screen name or nickname of the of the unabashed neo-Nazi slash internet troll who whom Norton has written about as, as a friend, as a friend of hers, someone who she is close with and, and, and understands to be a racist and a, and a, and a white supremacist, but uh, engages with anyway, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we've and them sort of also believe that the internet can change the world, but they're gonna, they want to change it for the worse. One thing I keep getting stuck on is that in, in reading some of her old essays in the past two days, these are essays from last year or two or three, one thing that struck me was that she was uncommonly thoughtful in some of these pieces about racism and, and, and the role of white people in perpetuating the suffering of minorities. And I'm trying to understand how do, how do we square that with her apparent enthusiasm for engaging with neo-Nazis? From what I understand, you know, she's written and sort of talked about how she felt that she could perhaps build bridges to weave and hopefully bring him back mm-hmm. and you know great help him if you think you can that's great but i don't think you can do that and also be the lead new york times <laughs> you know opinion writer on technology it just destroys your credibility i feel and that's what we've seen like this week yeah and so and, and i guess one thing that i'm curious about uh, and how it fits into what you just said is that 
she seems proudly ambivalent about everything, about, about right and wrong, about good and bad. And she has one essay in particular that, that made the rounds yesterday about this guy, John Rabe, who was an actual Nazi who, who worshipped Adolf Hitler. And in this essay, she tells the story of how Rabe moved to China and in, in, in 1937 formed a group that helped protect untold numbers of Chinese people from uh, Japanese aggressors. She, and she writes in this essay that hundreds of thousands of people would have likely died in that bloody winter without their Nazi. I don't know if a staunch Nazi can be a good man, but by the end of it all, in late January, he was a hero. To me, it's quite inscrutable what she means by that and, and what she thinks, what kind of moral imperative that contains. But I wonder if it explains partly why she was able to tolerate Weave's not just opinions, but his actions, which were violent and horribly destructive to many people. Yeah, I think it does go a long way toward explaining that apparent contradiction. And I think one thing that she missed in that essay was you have to be able to distinguish between the person and the action. Um, there are bad actions in like the world. Neo-Nazism, bad ideology, like <laughs> agitating against uh, you know minority groups in the real world. Very, very bad. Like the people who do these things may well be morally conflicted. There may well be more to these people than is easily sort of explained on social media platforms. I will grant that people are complex. Actions are comparatively simple. If you're going to be a credible pundit, you need to be able to distinguish between the person and the action. And that's what, from all I've read, you know, she hasn't done. Yeah. You know, the, the, the people who called for, for her firing, actually, I don't know if it was that simple they were calling for her firing, but the people whose, whose outrage at her hiring resulted in her dismissal, I couldn't quite tell if most of them thought she was a white supremacist and a Nazi or if most of them thought that she was a bad choice for this job for the reasons that you've just laid out. Um, I don't know. I don't really think it matters. You know, here's the thing man like i think she probably would have produced some good columns i would have been interested to see what she have would have written for the times quinn norton was not a basic choice you know and you know that's perhaps you know a, a good thing but she also wasn't a good choice because there's plenty of other people out there who will also do interesting thought-provoking nuanced work for the new york times mm -hmm. who do not have a clear history of bragging about how they are friends with notorious assholes mm -hmm. and, you know, saying stuff that people of good conscience and good faith actors could read and say, hmm, this to me throws the Times' credibility into question. Right. All right. Justin Peters, thank you so much for being on the show. It was just, just excellent to talk to you. Thanks, Leon. Uh, talk to you soon, man. All right. So that was my interview with Justin Peters, author of The Idealist. I don't know if what Justin said was a spontaneous articulation of how to think about this stuff, but it felt new to me, or at least it made me doubt the intuitions I came in with in an unfamiliar way. Those intuitions were mostly informed by Quinn Norton's essay, The Problem with White Shunning. 
it's the essay I was referring to when I said that she seemed to have an uncommon sensitivity towards race. The essay was published on Medium in November of 2017, a couple of weeks after the election. I read it the day after Norton got unhired by the Times, which was, again, a day after I learned her name. I found it really jarring to read this essay after seeing Norton taken down as a Nazi sympathizer. Because the essay is about how white people have a responsibility to confront their racist friends and relatives, to argue with them instead of washing their hands of them. Norton thinks that it's immoral for white people to passively allow the racists in their lives to continue thinking the way they do, because it forces minorities to bear the brunt of that racism. Here's a quote. People often say that if you don't throw these people out of your life, you abet racism. But the problem was never having racist friends and family. That's an inevitable part of whiteness. The problem has always been white silence. When you have racist friends and family, your silence enables and perpetuates their racism and the harm it does in the world. I think this essay is really good. It strikes me as enlightened and persuasive. Maybe I'm missing something, but it reads to me like an explanation for why Quinn Norton was friends with this monster known as Weave. And it's an explanation that strikes me as unassailable, morally, politically, on every level. I didn't understand how anyone could read this essay and think that Norton, by virtue of being friends with someone like Weave, should be viewed as a Nazi collaborator, a person who tolerates Nazis and at the end of the day is just as bad as them. But talking to Justin made me think that maybe this was a caricature of the quote-unquote social justice warrior position on Norton. Justin's point, as you heard, is that it's absolutely possible to acknowledge a person's complexity, that it's okay to find them interesting and to feel conflicted about them, while nevertheless judging without any equivocation the things they actually do. And the undeniable fact about Quinn Norton's friend Weave was, he did more than just say abhorrent things. He did them. For example, he provided indispensable tech support for the Daily Stormer. He also hacked printers on college campuses so they would print out swastikas. Even the horrible things Weave just said to his fellow Nazis, about torturing Jews, about laughing and spitting in their faces as they died, should be viewed as actions. If they weren't actions, a troll like Weave probably wouldn't think they were worth saying. The Quinn Norton story, the story of her aborted career at the New York Times, demonstrates to me something that people on the far left have been saying lately, which is that no, there is no room for equivocation here. You have to have principles, ideals. There is such a thing as right and wrong. Just for instance, Slate just published a piece headlined, Actually, Owning an Immigrant is Bad. It's a response to an essay in Politico, laying out a policy scheme in which individual small business owners would be able to sponsor people in other countries to come to the U.S. and work for them for less than minimum wage. Now, I don't really want to get into the merits of either article, but the point of the Slate headline was that there are lines, that owning human beings is wrong, and that that's the end of the discussion. There's a lot of power in this construction, and you see it quite a lot lately if you read the news and if you read Twitter, that something is bad with a capital B. I have a colleague, Osita Wanevu, who uses this construction quite a bit. Now, I wouldn't single him out like this if I didn't think that he was such an excellent writer and such an original thinker. But since you all know he is, since he's been on the gist before, I don't need to explain why I was psyched to read his slate piece about Quinn Norton. In the piece, Osita argues that according to Quinn's worldview, complicated people are best evaluated with a simple and universalizing ambivalence. I think that's a brilliant phrase. Simple and universalizing ambivalence. Osita is right. Always being like, well, yeah, I don't know, gotta see both sides, nothing is disqualifying. It's kind of an easy way to move through the world, even if it leaves room for you, okay, for me, to self-identify as a man of nuance. What's interesting is that I think of Osita as a real liberal, and I remember when it was conservatives who were making the case for moral absolutism. 
Liberals were the ones arguing for something closer to moral relativism and pragmatism, saying that we should have an understanding of people's cultures before we judge them and consider their upbringing and so forth, that we should want to bridge our differences with people who we disagree with. I honestly don't know what to make of the fact that things have changed, that the left position is now to say no, there are principles and we cannot deviate from them, but it does seem like a change. All right, so before I talk to Justin Peters about Quinn Norton, my plan was to use the spiel to talk about this really funny ad campaign that I saw. It's for Twix bars. I don't know if you've seen these ads, but the concept is that every packet of Twix bars comes with a left Twix and a right Twix. And there are all these TV ads where they explore the concept. So in one, they offer the backstory of how Twix was founded. They say there were these two guys who were getting ready to open a factory together, and then they had a falling out. And one of them started a factory making left Twix, and the other one started a factory where they made right Twix. Years ago, when the inventors Seamus and Earl unveiled their Twix bar, the tension between them reached a breaking point. Literally. In one of the other ads, you see the left Twix factory workers sitting around and discussing right Twix. One guy asks if the other two have ever wondered what right Twix tastes like, and they say no. Has you ever tried one of these bars made over a right Twix? Why? Our special cookie is cascaded with caramel and cloaked in chocolate. How good could their right Twix be? Never wondered? I find these to be really funny and high concept, and I admire how far Twix has taken it. They have the joke on the packaging now. When I went to the Slate vending machine earlier today to buy a Twix bar, I got one that said, right Twix only. They've really committed to this idea. I was kind of astonished to learn that this campaign has been going on since 2012. But the more Twix ads I watched, the less sure I was about what joke specifically they were making. One thought I had was that left Twix, right Twix was a joke about marketing. For example, in this ad, they're using marketing terms to describe and distinguish how the two bars are made. Each factory took a vastly different approach. Left Twix flowed caramel on cookie, while right Twix cascaded caramel on cookie. Left Twix bathed in chocolate, while right Twix cloaked in chocolate. It calls to mind the first episode of Mad Men, right, where Don comes up with an ad campaign for Lucky Strike that just says, it's toasted. It doesn't matter that all the other tobacco companies also toast their tobacco. The important thing is that Lucky Strike does. Okay, so that's the interpretation of the ad campaign where it's just ad guys making fun of themselves and consumerism. But it also occurred to me that maybe this is a joke about how people have arbitrary preferences in general. Like, here's a different version of the ad, in which two beefy guys are standing on either side of the entrance to a nightclub. How about these right Twix packs? I'm more of a love Twix guy myself, but I'm glad to see they finally got their own packs. Yup. Acting like they're the same thing is as ignorant as saying you, a bouncer, the same as me, a doorman. Yeah, bro. Ignorant. There's a third interpretation, too, and in some ways it's the most obvious of the three or at least the most literal. This interpretation says that the left Twix, right Twix ad campaign is all about politics, right? So there are people on the left and there are people on the right, and they make a big deal about how they're different, but really they're all the same. And I got to tell you, the evidence suggests that this was in fact the intended message of the campaign. First off, the ad premiered in 2012, an election year, a fact that was noted in Ad Age in a write-up. Second, and this really gives it away, the name of the original ad is Ideologies. It's telling that I didn't think of this possible explanation until long after I first encountered this ad. What it tells me is that in 2018, it seems insane that anyone would ever act like political differences don't matter. Left and right are different. Liberals and conservatives, different. Democrats and Republicans, very different. To act like they're not, or to use a Twix ad to imply that they're not, it just doesn't compute right now. It was only a few months ago that the president stood up and said that there were fine people on both sides of the Charlottesville Nazi march. Gotta hear both sides is no longer something you can say earnestly. 
Instead, it's a dark joke. And yet I still think that Quinn Norton would have almost certainly written a bunch of really interesting things for the New York Times. You can persuasively argue that, you know, oh well, that's the cost of this moment of change. But I do wish that everyone could agree that there is a cost. That is our show. Pierre Bienname is the producer of The Gist. Mary Wilson is senior producer. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Mike Pesca is the host of The Gist in Absentia. Umperu Deparu Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>